Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Square Ball Podcast. Hello, welcome to Podcast 132. My name's Dan Moylan. With me is Michael Normanton. Hello. Moscow White, Daniel Chapman. Hello. And a very special guest today, the YUP's Chief Football Writer, Phil Hay. Good evening, everybody. Right, Phil's heroes and villains to come, plus the latest burning Leeds United issue shortly, and I'm sure we will delve right into the playoff final in just a second. First, a word on our summer special, which is on the way. That'll be on sale, along with subscriptions and all the good stuff. You'll find it at thesquareball.net. Right, so Qatar, is there anything in it? We will tackle that after a word about the playoff final that happened today. Did we all enjoy that? I'll come to you then first, Phil. I wasn't going to watch it, to be honest. It was one of the one of those. I mean, I, I was at Hamden on Saturday for the Scottish Cup final, which was supreme disappointment. Although not the disappointment I was expecting. I was thinking Celtic three hearts nil with an hour to go would have been the, um, the scoreline. And for six minutes, it was on. Um, and the only bonus of this weekend was that I was able to avoid a Hamden-Wimbley doubleheader of, of two defeats in three days. But I did I did follow it in the end. Um, I think if there was either team that we all round here wanted to see get it, it was probably Derby County. Wasn't it? But I must be honest, I didn't really have a dog in the fight. And, and I thought in the end, it was probably Villa's game and deserved win for them. I didn't really. I, I had that thought as well. I, I'm not really bothered who wins this. And then as the game went on and Derby were obviously losing, I thought, oh, Twitter, this will be fun. <laughs> so what about you two? As if you've not been thinking that for the last two weeks. You've had them, you've had them queued up for a while, haven't you? Those, those tweets. You've had a few favourites to go back to, I know. I did create a special document in my notes on my phone linking to all the tweets that I wanted to revisit, but nothing wrong with that, is there? If you give it out, you've got to take it and then give it out again. In the, it wasn't, it wasn't a very good game in the end, was it really? I only watched the second half onwards because I'd just sort of, I, I was doing the same. I was trying to ignore it really. I was just kind of out in the garden chasing my children around and stuff. But then, yeah, I kind of thought, I'll, I'll see what's going on. And it was rubbish. Yeah, it's quite, it's good on one hand. You think, oh, maybe it was worth losing to Derby just to see them go through that pain yet again, their annual failure. But then mixed with feelings, well, how did we not beat them when they're mm. that bad? Villa just strolled into the Premier League this afternoon, which makes it great to laugh at the genius of Frank Lampard and Jody Morris as they're purported to be. But then also frustrating that really um, we would have given Villa a fight. Do you think the right team went up then, Phil? I'd say so. The, the back end of the season, they, when we came away from Brentford on that, that at the end of that horrible Easter weekend, I bumped into a couple of Leeds fans in the petrol station just round the road from um, around the corner from Brentford's ground, and they were saying to me, "We'd all pretty much given up on second place by that point." And they were saying, "Well, win the playoffs, win the playoffs." And I said to them, oh, "I think it'll be Villa, really, looking at the form." I'm not sure even Villa were as good as the, the those ten wins on the bounce made them win, uh, made them look. If I'm being honest, I mean, we saw them at Elland Road. I don't think they were. I don't think they were massively impressive and, and I don't think there was, in the end there was any team in the division that 
Leeds shouldn't have been better than um, on the day um, and, and couldn't have been better than. But I think if you're comparing Villa and Derby, then yeah, I mean, Villa for me, certainly in the second half of the season, have been the, the better of the two teams. Deserve to go up. I think are probably a team who quietly everybody will be quite happy to get out of this league as well. They've, they've got money when they need it. They've got players uh, who are a cut above most in the championship. So yeah, I think so. I think it, it, was, it was theirs and deservedly so. Do you think uh, Frank Lampard will stay at Frank Lampard's Derby County? I have no idea, but I, I'm... Really, I, see, I'm I'm on the side of the fence, which thinks he's done a pretty decent job down there. I mean, it is his first year in management, taking this, him from sixth this, to sixth. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> parity or something like that. Yeah, it's it, it's unpopular opinion, but he he's dipped into this for the first time. He's he seems to have handled it pretty well. But I'm amazed, really, that people are talking about Chelsea next, given that Sarri doesn't seem to be good enough for them. And quite honestly, nothing seems to be good enough for Chelsea. And I, I'm I sort of wonder whether really. Lampard has it up his sleeve to be able to turn them into a side who are going to mix it with Liverpool and Manchester City. Will he stay? He will surely stay if he doesn't have another job offer, but something tells me that if you dangle something good in front of him, he'll be very tempted to go. He's not a Derby man, is he? Uh, no. What's, what's the definition of a Derby man? Richard, Richard Keogh? <laughs> Maybe so. Player manager could be. I say player manager if we next, just imagine yeah. what Richard Keogh is doing right now, we're about, what are we, an hour after... Full time. That's probably the definition of a Derby man, just crying into a towel somewhere at the back of a bus. Thousand yard stare, I think, which he does anyway. Do you think kind of maybe Chelsea are going to be afflicted by that madness that's afflicting Man United with Solskjaer a bit? Possibly. But then again, I mean, the, the thing about Solskjaer was they, they desperately needed somebody at that point just to come in and, and get a grip of things, which he, he did. Although I was saying on Twitter a few months back, I think there's loads of Emperor's new clothes about Solskjaer and I do think that'll be borne out not purely down to him and, and it's solely his fault but I don't think it's going to work Lampard I mean it's the, it's the end of the season it's me still if Chelsea want another manager they've got ample amounts of time to have a look around you've got Allegri on the market you've got other people like that who have as, as much experience as, as you would like and I don't really see how if you're a a relatively cash-rich club although not so much in comparison to maybe where they were 10 years ago but why you would decide that the dream team of Lampard and John Terry is what you want when there are elite coaches all over the place. But then, giving English talent a chance. There's a strange argue. fetish for people employing old players. Though, aren't they? We got stuck with it in the 70s and 80s, didn't we, with Clark mm. and Bremen and Gray, giving them all thinking, but they were good they were good players for us, so surely they'll know that magic. A bit like, a bit like Man United have done. He knows the Man United way. It's like, no, he, he knew how to come on and be a decent substitute to score goals but it's not the same you're not asking him to do that anymore the, the phrase I always hate is he knows the club as if you need to know what time the post gets delivered in the morning and you need to know your way around the training ground otherwise there's going to be a problem on your first day when, when you turn up I don't I really see these days it makes any difference whether you know about the club or don't I mean most people know about major clubs anyway it would probably be helpful not to know about a club like Leeds United that's possibly what we've seen with Marcelo Bielsa absolutely like somebody who has no idea what has gone on here before whereas if we if we followed this fashion I could see the the summer merry-go-round so Oli Gunnar Solskjaer stays at Man United Lampard goes to Chelsea we get David Hopkins to replace Bielsa <laughs> this is late 90s churn he knows the club did he know it when it was good Maybe he did get Clyde Feinhard in as his coach. He also knows now, though, doesn't he? I was saying that in my report after the second leg. This is this is why they came and spent three million quid on you because this is what happens every year, and this is desperately what they're trying to break. Derby in trouble now financially, do we think? Because Villa have got the hundred and seventy million in the bank. Well, the reports one recently that Mel Morris was trying to sell them for a pound, provided that his losses and debts were covered. And I think we'll probably come on to this with Leeds, and it comes back to that thing about how expensive it is now to run the championship club and it is absolutely no joke. I mean, you, you need more than 
Back in the day, you, if you were a, a fairly wealthy local businessman, you could club together with others, you could run a club, you could control a club and it was fine. But these days you need to have huge amounts of expendable cash. And given that he, uh, he obviously does, Candy Crush Man, but given that he has just bought the stadium uh, essentially to, as a workaround for FFP and to stop Derby breaking the rules on that and, and coming a cropper in the way that Birmingham did, they're obviously losing a lot of money. They're obviously in a pretty tight hole and and. You know, I sort of wonder, I think it's probably true for Villa as well. How much longer can you go on in this league spending and spending and spending or not even spending money on players, but having to cover debts and to, I guess, underwrite all the losses you're making? So he looked pretty stony faced to me when I saw him um, in the crowd today. It's very very diplomatic. You would imagine not only the result, but the thought of what's to come. Yeah, maybe you could buy the training ground. I hear they've got a nice line of external fences that they've just put. So the value must have gone up. And some nice sheeting over them these days as well. Yeah, absolutely. So we look at the... um, the division next year. Anybody we should be fearing in there? Leeds United. Obviously, we will be our own worst enemy, as we always know. It doesn't matter. 23 other teams and us. Biggest fight, us. What about the teams that are coming down? Uh, Cardiff, Warnock's Cardiff, if he stays. Uh, Fulham, they're going to have a few quid, aren't they? And uh, a team called Huddersfield Town. But Fulham have spent money so badly, they're going to be trying to get rid of players this summer rather than buying them in, I would think. It's gonna, there's going to be a lot of churn there. And they've appointed a, an experienced manager as well. I don't really fancy him to do a great deal. He knows the club, though. Knows he the does club. know the he club. Yeah. Know, knows the club. Yeah. Who's at Fulham now? Scott Parker. Scott Scotty Parker? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. didn't know that. So when DPD are turning up at 10 in the morning, you'll know that that's when you've got to be there to get the players' <laughs> boots and, and everything else. But I go along with that. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure I fancy Parker at, at Fulham massively. Cardiff will be strong with Warnock again, though. You know that. What's the average age of their team going to be? I mean, there must be old, old people, Peltier, Bamba, whoever. They've not signed a player under 30 for about 10 years, I, I feel like. Well, that was Leeds back in 2012, wasn't it? That was the same routine with David Norris and and the crew. Mind you, Bamba going to Cardiff seemed to turn him into Busquets for that season when they're in the championships. So never never write off big Bamba. But he's had a bad knee injury, actually, so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how he comes back. But they, they I think, will be they'll be strong enough. But even field, I think, looking through it, mm. very, very even. There's a lot of sort of middling-sized clubs there, aren't there, really? There's none that really jump out besides Leeds. But again, as we were saying, we are our own worst enemy. West Brom have got to be, I mean, if, if they, if they're sensible with what they do over the summer, they should be very handy. I didn't really understand the management, not so much the management of their squad, but the management of the head coaches this season seemed bizarre really to get rid of Moore on the basis that you weren't close enough to the top two. And then essentially to sit on your hands for the rest of the season and, and losing the playoffs was a bit odd, but they've, um, they've got definite potential, I think. And Luton and Barnsley, another Yorkshire derby there. And Charlton return for Lee Bowyer. Be interesting. He's done well, actually. Somebody was saying to me after Bielsa came came in that Leeds were very keen on Bowyer and liked what he was starting to do as a coach. And he's um, he's done good things with, with very little money. Somebody was saying that he, I don't think he's spent a transfer fee down there this season and has got them up regardless. And it's odd, really, because you have this, without knowing much about Bowyer personally, you have this image of him as perhaps not being the sharpest, not necessarily being manage, management material. But the guys, the journalists who are working with him down there say he's, he's been very, very good. Um, and his contract's up this summer and it kind of makes me wonder if, say for example, Lampard was to go from Derby, whether or not Derby might think, you know, if budgets are tight and everything else, that he might be quite a good show. But um, yeah, doing well, I think. Or if, Bielsa, if Bielsa leaves, he knows the club. Well, I didn't want to say that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot hasn't he? I think there were some interviews before he took over at Charlton where he was saying he didn't want to be a manager because he was, he'd bought a pond in France and he was fishing. That's right, yeah. And I think that's possibly something he could have done with doing when he was 20. Just go and spend some time fishing and calming down and just, just the Johnny House and Wick. Him and Johnny House and who's caught the biggest fish? Charlton's chaos. 
there's even been like the players at the club slagging off the owners saying, mm. um, you should have signed this striker in the, in the window. And they haven't, which is, is quite bold when that's going on. But then the owner never turns up because he's busy in, in Belgium hiding from the fans. So it's <laughs> for him to be there. So in a lot of ways, that's the best time to be tweeting about your owner. <laughs> yeah, when he's, so for, there's nowhere to be seen. For Lee Bowyer to be this kind of the, the calm head and the, the, the cool guy who holds all this together and is incredible, really, considering he could, you know, he couldn't get through a night out without. Yeah, I was going to say, well, it Problems. looks like Woodgate may be making the first steps towards management now, doesn't it? Maybe a dream team there. Would that work, do we think? Tongue firmly in cheek. Uh, <laughs> what's Tony Hackwood doing now? I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what Woodgate's credentials are. I know he's been on the, the staff up there. But he knows the club. The, well, <laughs> he does. It, it does, yeah. Yeah, and that seems to be enough. So so let's ride with it. Because there's such a difference between being on the staff and being in the background and actually having the talent and the wit and... I guess the mental capacity as well to be able to cope with management, which is, I mean, I don't know how Bielsa does it. I don't know how much he sleeps and, and how much time he gets away from the game, but it feels like he, he never switches off ever. It's like he lives lives it for 10 months and then goes on holiday for the summer and then starts again. Well, Yeah, but you imagine he's probably one of these guys whose wife's trying to take him around museum and Buenos Aires or something like that. And he's he's spending the whole time thinking about how he's going to sort out the left wing next season because it wasn't <laughs> quite right and, and this, that and the other. I remember Warnock saying once the, the summer when he was here as manager, he was having to pretend to go to the toilet or the bar a lot so he could go on his phone and, and text people about transfers and so on. It's a bit like me, that, to be because honest. Because was getting so, <laughs> so napped about him never switching off. And um, in a totally different way, I think it would be exactly the same. Stressful. So would, would Gate be up to that? I, I don't know. We will see. Well, in just a bit, we've got a question and answer with Phil and the ones that we don't have time for on this podcast, we're going to put into the Extra Ball, which is our subscription podcast. If you'd like to support us on this one, please get behind it and subscribe to the Extra Ball and you can hear questions like this. What was Chilino like then? There was one instance where Popey and I went to interview him and he'd come back from, must have been Bahrain he was in, because that's where GFH's offices were. But he had this Arab headdress and robe that he put on as we were sat in this room waiting to interview him and was jumping around the room shouting Allah Akbar and we, the two of us are just thinking this is unlike probably any meeting with a club owner we're ever going to have ever again in, in our lives we like to do loads more podcasting and this is the way to make it happen if you like this it's two ninety nine a month your first month free find it at thesquareball.net forward slash the extra ball well, this is the bit where we normally talk about what's been going on. So we have to say the immortal words, any news, Phil. And it seems to be that we're getting taken over by Qatar, aren't we? And we're going to be rich beyond all our wildest dreams. Yes, by tomorrow morning. Yes, that'll be, be done and dusted. Um, no, okay. So was this the news you wanted coming out of the cup final on Saturday? Where were you when all this started going? I'd, I had to drive on Saturday. So I left at about eight in the morning and was back at about quarter to ten at night. So a typical sort of match day really minus any of the, the writing or the or the work. Um, so it was about ten o'clock, yeah, and the Financial Times dropped this on Twitter, Radrazani talking to Qatar Sports Investment um about buying Leeds United. And I thought, tremendous. Just what I just what I want. <laughs> so there's definite links between Radrazani and Qatar and um nobody at the club would, would pretend otherwise. He he's Long-time associate friend, whatever you, you want to call it, with the chairman of, um, of QSI, who is also president of Paris Saint-Germain, Nasser Al-Khalifa. They go back a long way. They go back to the days when they were both selling TV rights for MP and Silver and um, BN Sport and, and all that. So they know each other really well. And, and the idea that Radrazani and, um, and Al-Khalifa might discuss investment at Leeds is, is plausible. 
from that that perspective. And also you've got the link up with the Aspire Academy, which was set up in 2017. And a lot was made of that last season. It has to be said, nobody really speaks about it anymore these days, in part because, well, I think in, in no small part, because it was a very mixed first season under Radrazani. And by the end of it, a lot of people were asking, what is the benefit of a partnership, which more than anything seems to be giving Aspire and a, a profile in the UK and Leeds not a great deal. And also issues like the tie-up with cultural Leonesa, which didn't seem to be doing anything. And actually the, the one good player at Leonesa, Buendia, wound up at Norwich and Leeds didn't bother with him and he, he turned out to be a top player. So Aspire isn't too much on the, the agenda anymore, but that is definitely in the background, you know, that, that relationship. But from speaking to people at the club and assuming that they're being straight up about this, they're saying that Radrazani will be here next season with the same shareholding that he isn't planning to sell any shares, that there isn't much in the talk of um, QSI wanting to invest here and now, that there's no proposal on the table, that pretty much it is going to be the same structure and the same setup going into to next season. I like to keep an open mind with these things because you know how it goes and you know that that money talks. But if that's right and and they're being straight up with us about it, then that seems to be where we're where we're at, sadly, for anybody who thought Qatari money was in the post. <laughs> I can hear the collective disappointment being uh, pouring out now. So why has this come out then? Is it down to this Financial Times uh, football event that they were both at, Radrazani? And maybe is it a comment that's taken on a life of its own? Or I think so. A little bit showing off, maybe. Potentially. And he'll have been speaking to journalists down there. He was doing a seminar um, where we saw him have a pop at Mel Morris over the sale of Derby Stadium and, and saying quite openly that it's going to be a difficult transfer window, which, again, the news that everybody, everybody wants to hear. So I think he's probably grown legs in, in that sense. There will be, there, there are always, always potential points of interest in the background for any owner. And there must be plenty for him because the club are losing plenty of money and they'll, they'll lose about, I think they'll lose about 50 million quid in this financial year. So running up to the end of June, which is a pretty sizable sum. But you've got the base of really, really big crowds at the moment. I think the revenue's up at about, the annual turnover is about 45 million pounds now, which is really big increase on where it was towards the end of Chilino's time. So there's plenty to throw your money at there. And even more so if you can get the club promoted. Um, but it does seem as if he's going to stick in and give it another go this season. That's certainly what he's saying at the moment. Can we afford to do exactly the same thing again? Well, I was saying to you before I came on air, I hope that nobody is thinking that Bielsa finishing third this season equals Leeds getting promoted with Bielsa next season automatically, because I don't think it's quite that simple. I think there were issues with the size of the squad. I think there were issues with certain areas of the team. I think there are questions about whether some of the players who played as well as they did this season will be able to do that again second time round because Bielsa really did push them en masse to the edge. And I do think the club could do with pushing the boat out as far as they can um, when it comes to the quality of players that they're offering to him. Um, And I do think that there need to be certain changes. I think it would be a bit presumptuous to think that because they've been so good this season and gone so close that they automatically will next season because it isn't kind of exact science like that and I do think he is I do think he has squeezed everything out of this squad absolutely everything so by definition needs to improve I mean Michael you're uh, notoriously tight-fisted when it comes to spending money what do you think we should do this isn't my money I think we should buy some players (laughs) (laughs) although with with Qatari money I don't know it's a bit it's a bit filthy isn't it would we feel okay about the ethical considerations or would we turn a blind eye to it do we almost is there an argument for saying, well, they're going to put it in somewhere into the English football? Why not us? Oh, football's a cesspit, really, isn't it? From it's to be successful, you need to spend a lot of money, and I'm not talking about successful getting out of the championship, successful, but to go up and not just be aiming to stay up every year and maybe get at the odd Europa League spot. 
you've got to spend a huge amount of money. And that unfortunately means getting into bed with some probably quite undesirable people, whether it's Russian oligarchs or oil money or something like that. See, I don't think it necessarily does because I've seen a lot over the weekend, the kind of the the story on social media has turned around to almost if Radrizzani doesn't accept this takeover bid from Qatar that everybody now has read the top line of this Financial Times report but thinks it's happening by Monday, that he's holding the club back and that there's people, there's, there was a petition started saying sell up to Qatar and there's people saying that if he doesn't do this, well, then we need to drum him out if he doesn't accept this bid. Even in that report, it said there were five other people that we, he's speaking to. There's a lot of people wanting to invest. And I don't think... You know, we talk about Leeds Night being a, a proud club with a great history. We need to get to not just accept the bid as soon as we hear Q. Like people aren't even getting to R in Qatar before they go, oh, yes, they can have us. We'll, we'll be taken over by that. And I think it's born out of desperation because everybody wants us out of this division as soon as possible, whatever it takes. But then who are the other five bidders? Maybe they're nice. It's not impossible. <laughs> and you look at the, we've got the Champions League final. How do you accrue billions of pounds while being lovely? Well, the Champions League final next week is... Tottenham, which is Daniel Levi basically owns that. And even though his money is offshore in various places, he's jeans mainly. Yeah. <laughs> and, Sorry. And then against Liverpool, who are in their second consecutive one, and all that money's from America. It's Fenway Sports Group. And they're in the second consecutive Champions League final. QSI can't get Paris Saint-Germain anywhere near it. Manchester City with money from the Emirates, they can't get the Champions League final. You've got two perfectly adequate, I don't know of any particular human rights complaints against Daniel Levi or, or Fenway. So when you say it's it's Qatar, a lot of people say that if we don't take the Qatar Middle Eastern money, then we don't have a chance. There's a whole world full of good, bad billionaires out there. You've just got to get them interested. And our profile in uh, in South America, perhaps there's a very generous drug lord who is, <laughs> yeah. who is seen as uh, involved with Escobar's the Elsa and has never, never heard of us yeah. before. It's not Middle East money or nothing. And I think when you look at, there is the argument, like it doesn't matter where the money comes from because there's so much dirty money around. So if it doesn't matter, you may as well try and get the the stuff that isn't going to have Amnesty International on your case all the time and have you feeling all the time, like, are we really comfortable with this? There are people you can, you can be, I would not have a problem with Daniel Lee if I was our owner. The the dangerous of those people though, it's self-perpetuating because Spurs have been in the Champions League. They therefore have money to continue being in the Champions League to hold on to players. Breaking into that, bit in the first place. That is where the money is required, I suppose. But the good thing with, with Spurs is that they, they've been, a lot of people felt that, think of Daniel Levy as quite tight-fisted. So over the years, there's been quite a lot of chatter from the Spurs end about we don't spend enough money, we don't sign good enough players. And suddenly they're in the Champions League final. And like you say, you, you then start to develop revenue from that. You've got a stadium that's probably as good as any in the country now, um, if not Europe. And it might just be that Spurs are going to stick for a long time now. And actually his strategy will, will be proven to, to be correct. The other thing in the Championship is that even if QSI were to buy the club and come in with £400 million, they cannot spend £400 million on the team unless they're going to disregard FFP rules for one year, however long, and gamble on the fact that they will get promoted before the Football League come calling and start deducting points and imposing transfer embargoes, as they have done with Sheffield Wednesday and and others, because you've got limits on the size of loss that an owner can underwrite and pick up with his own money every year. So it isn't, I know you can, you can have workarounds with stadium sponsorship deals in the way that Manchester City do with Etihad and, and, and everything else, which people would say is essentially Abu Dhabi by another name and money coming from the same people via, via another source, which doesn't, isn't included as, as owner cash, but it isn't, a, it isn't that straightforward. Um, so if you were thinking that somebody from Qatar could come in 
And we would then spend £20 million on Tammy Abraham. Leeds would be in breach of FFP if that happened. So you can do that for a year and you can take the chance that you're going to get promoted. But if you don't, and you know how difficult it is in this league, then you're kind of reserving problems for, for further down the line, which is not a reason to do it. But I think it's a reason not to be seduced by the idea that you're going to end up with the Harlem Globetrotters simply because somebody from Qatar has bought the club. There is almost a weird scenario where the more money we spend on transfers, if we did go out and spend 20 million on Tammy Abraham, the more likely it is that we would have to sell Jack Clark because that's where we have to balance it. Absolutely. Otherwise, that is something that, and after ever, it's not just, obviously, Radrick Sandy's made a, a fuss about uh, Mel Morris in his stadium, but it's uh, Gibson, who's actually the one with the legal action. Birmingham have got to be in the bonnet because they've actually been punished. Sheffield Wednesday. So after six years of Sean Harvey's glorious rule, <laughs> in which he is, quote, sums it up the other day, that we have a business model that relies on owner funding, but that stops owners from putting funding in because of the FFP regulations. All that's come to a head. He's now off. And in next season, I think anybody, even with the slightest little breach of FFP, everybody's going to jump on them. Well, they're going to have to because of the Birmingham case, aren't yeah. they? Birmingham were picked out as the only club who'd breached the profit and sustainability rules over the first three-year accounting period. And on that basis, anybody who goes over it isn't going to have any defence. And there is a kind of sliding scale of how many points you should get deducted depending on how badly you breach it and whether it looks like particularly bad faith. But they've pretty much put themselves in a position now where any breach of PNS is going to have to result in a, a points deduction, you would have thought. Although the EFL being the EFL, you never say never. I mean, that would be the worst thing that could happen to us is we finally go, you know what, let's actually, we'll just breach it. And suddenly Sean Harvey's replacement <laughs> is competent and we get punished to the nth degree. The other thing with uh, Qatar, with this particular offer and, and the report is that, yes, yeah, so the one side is that they can't really spend all the, the transfer money. And the report says, the one that has got everybody excited says they would not put money into transfers. It's there in the financial time zone mm. tidbit. Mm. But then it says that the money may be used by Rajvitsani to go and buy Genoa, which would be attractive to PSG. So it turns from being, and this is why I'm saying we need to get to the end of what the offer is before everybody's going, oh, we need to do a petition to get them in. Because that doesn't sound to me like something that's being done for the benefit of Leeds United to get us to make us Champions League uh, contenders every year. It's to build a network for PSG, Genoa and, and Leeds United by the back door, give Ratrizani some money so he can go and buy them so it doesn't look like us and we have this circle. And then it becomes this thing that's, again, for the benefit of Qatar and probably for the benefit of PSG rather than for Leeds United. And that's even in the report that's got everybody excited. And so I, I sort of think, just read three paragraphs down and just go, actually, this doesn't look good. And let's perhaps just sticking with it and yeah. take a step yeah. back and... Yeah, but we're not. But we're in such desperate circumstances yeah. after 16 years that that's the headspace we occupy, isn't it? Well, let's move it forward a little bit now. Then, if we are faced with the question of stick or twist, and we are sticking, Phil, you said we've squeezed every drop out of what we've got right now, and we need to do something different. What do we need to do different? Because we obviously fell short. I think for starters, and I say this knowing fine well that the chances of being able to listen to this podcast pretty slim, understanding it's probably fairly slimmer again, um, <laughs> but also of deviating from his general strategy is, is not what he does. So we, I always think whenever you, you write anything saying, you know, he got this wrong or he could have done this differently, you're kind of howling in the wind because he, he has this fixed, fixed way of doing things, which, which to a large extent you've got to respect. But I did feel at the start and I did feel by the end that the squad was too small and it was kind of summed up for me, and I know there were a lot of injuries, but it was summed up by the presence in the second leg at Ellen Road of three players, three academy kids who'd never played a first-team game for Leeds. And 
I've been so impressed by the academy kids this season. I mean, almost more so than at any stage previously. And I include the, you know, the Lewis Coote years and the Byram years, the Charlie Taylor years, no matter how good they were, just on the basis of how many kids have been able to cope with being thrown in like Leif Davis with a three minute warning away at Aston Villa, <laughs> you know, just start at left back because Barry Douglas is is ill and grew into that game and actually coped, coped pretty well. But you are pushing it in the championship when you get to a crucial game like that and you need a goal at the end and your only option is really Izzy Brown off the bench who hasn't played for three months in your team, hasn't really played for 18 months at all, apart from under 23 level. And I did feel that with a bit of extra depth, he, he might have done himself a, a favour, Bielsa. I also think that there was a kin issue with the left side of the team for a lot of the season. And, and it was in January, I, I was disappointed that they didn't get Daniel James, but I did think, is that really going to define the season, that that transfer? Do they desperately need that one? And by the end of it, I, I did come around to thinking he probably would have been the difference of three, six, nine points potentially, because I think you'd have got more out of him on the left-hand side than you you did from Harrison. And I think that's it. They, they do need to, to knock it up in class and ability a little bit in, in certain areas. And I think it would help him to have more to, to turn to, even though that isn't really how he wants to run it. The public face of it that was last summer was almost that Bielsa had got everything he wanted. Is that what you were hearing from your side as well? I think in the main, I mean, it was interesting. We came out of the friendly at Oxford, which would have been late July. And at that stage, they hadn't signed anybody. Or or they'd got Lewis Baker, I think. They got Lewis Baker. They might have done Jamal Blackman. But to all intents and purposes, the the key signings you were looking for hadn't materialised. And the thing that was going on in the background was Abel Hernandez, Vidra these sort of signings that the club were, were genuinely serious about but weren't getting done. And when we came out of Oxford, there was this conflab going on in the car park between Bielsa, Alter, Kinnear, Radrazani, may have been somebody else with them as well. I, I forget now. But it, it felt for the first time like it might have been Bielsa saying, look, the season's coming very quickly. We need to get, and bear in mind that obviously the, the transfer deadlines are changing for August as well. We need to start getting things done. And it was the following day, I think, that there was a bit accepted for Barry Douglas. And then obviously Bamford was done the, the last week of July. And I never got the impression at any stage after that that Bielsa was fussed at all about players coming in. In fact, he, he tends to show so little interest towards transfers generally that I think as long as he's got a squad that he's reasonably happy with, he, he couldn't care less. But there wasn't much doubt in January that he was aware of the fact that Saez had gone. Obviously, they'd lost Blackman to, to injury. Lewis Baker had, had bailed out. I didn't see that as a great loss, I have to be honest, but um, he he clearly thought quite a lot of Baker. And reading between the lines, he, he would have been much happier had James materialised. I just don't think he blamed the club particularly for that. And I think he was quite philosophical about what happened in the end. But I think it was that was a, a pretty big setback with hindsight. Do you blame the club? Should we blame the Not club? It's probably a better way of phrasing that. Not in the main, but they aren't blameless either. They, the, the basic problem was that Swansea were heading for the deadline day from hell on the 31st. So they were looking like they were going to lose Leroy Fair to Villa, uh, Montero to West Brom, Wilfred Bonney was going because they need to get him off the wage bill. And weirdest of all was Daniel James on loan to Leeds, which if you think of that in reverse, you can only imagine the pitchforks around here as your best kid goes on loan to another championship club with the potential promise of a permanent move in the summer. And that was that was really why it was that in the end, Hugh Jenkins turned his phone off or refused to answer it and then resigned two days later because I think he just had enough and he realised how it was going to play out down there if that happened. With the loan fee, Leeds offered or suggested first up to pay it at the end of the season, which fairly naive given that Swansea needed money and were not really going to be happy with that. So late in the day on deadline day, 
Leeds went back to them and said, look, okay, what we'll do is we'll pay 750 grand up front now, the other 750 grand in the summer, which is pretty standard for transfers, you know, staggered payments. And that would have been fine, I think. But at that point, Jenkins obviously decided that he'd had enough. And as much as the owners were willing to do the deal, Jenkins didn't answer his phone. Jenkins was needed to sign it off. Um, he was one of the EFL signatories for, for transfers and it didn't happen. So I think between that and Leeds pushing it to the death to kind of squeeze Swansea into doing it at a point where they need money, I think they would probably say that they could have done things differently. But essentially, it was it was on Hugh Jenkins in the end. Who had suggested the loan? Because I think the question is why we hadn't done... We were bidding five million earlier in the the window, and what what, what point it changed from from a permanent transfer? And there seems to be a lot of surprise. They were going like alone. Yeah, I I, I was on the day because I wasn't aware of that, and I don't think anybody was until I think deadline day was Tuesday. So it was the Tuesday morning when I I started to phone around to check whether or not it was getting done on the basis that we assumed that it it was going to, and and suddenly it was a case of no, it looks like he's going to come on loan with a view to permanent. At the outset, I think they thought they could get him for about three million pounds, and then it rolled on and it rolled on and it became five. And then ultimately, Swansea started to think he's worth a lot more money than that, or he's or, or he's worth a decent chunk more. So you were talking seven, eight, nine, and at that level, Leeds didn't want to pay it up front, or happy to pay that money in the Premier League uh, if they if they're promoted because obviously you've got the cash to do it. But I think we're basically trying to indemnify themselves against you know a massive transfer fee which might cause them FFP problems further down the line so that was why and I'm still amazed that Swansea were happy to do it like that considering that in this these circumstances James would have gone back to them after this loan and then on to Old Trafford as it as seems to be the case but um, and they'll, they'll get their money one way or the other but yeah that was pretty pretty much it strange strange deal all around that one just noting that Abel Hernandez who we mentioned there in the conversation he's been released today hasn't yes. he Rush, did you see that yes didn't play much over there Injuries and poor finishing, because we kind of rediscussed this one uh, last week and we put it down to, I guess, marginal losses in a number of areas, uh, failure to get James, loss of Saez, poor finishing and injuries are the two that seem to have cost us. Do we need another striker to sort out this finishing problem? I'll be interested to see whether or not, and this this might force the hand a bit, whether or not they can keep hold of Roof this summer because he's down to his last 12 months now when he when he came from Oxford Chilino was owner Chilino at the time was trying to cut down the wage bill quite significantly and was trying to trying to rein back on the, the bigger wages that players were being paid so he'll be on a steady championship wage roof but he is a long way below what Bamford is earning and needless to say would want parity with him or something close to it which would mean a, a very big pay rise I don't know whether Leeds would be willing to pay that I don't know whether they'd be willing to meet him at that level because he's down to 12 months to go he might be quite an attractive option to club at the sort of lower end of the Premier League which I think would be the, the move for him as opposed to going somewhere else in the Championship but if he was to go and they will try and give him a new contract but if he was to go then absolutely they would need a, another striker in the current circumstances I can't help feeling that there's more to be had from Bamford if he's fit and he stays fit. I know there was a lot of criticism of his finishing. Some of his play was not particularly impressive and really there were points towards the end of the season where you thought desperately need somebody else up front. But I think it'll be difficult to shift him and recoup anything like the money that they paid for him and he's on a high wage. So on that basis, I think if you can make the best of that situation, it would probably help. But I think I think, yeah, they do. They do need, again, it's what I'm talking about, you know, squad size. I think a third option somebody else I know there's Tyler Roberts there but somebody else who who's done it at this level and, and, and will sort of consistently do it cannot be a bad thing well Gail's been mooted quite a lot is that beyond us do you think financially I would have thought so 
would have thought. So, I mean, I don't know what Newcastle would want to do with him, whether realistic. And it sounds like they're about to be bought out from Dubai, money from Dubai, um, if, if that's right this evening. But I don't know what they would want to do with him, whether they want to loan him again. If they don't, if they want to sell him, I mean, you're talking easily 10 million plus for him on the basis of how many goals he scored. Uh, he scores. So you can, I think you can pretty much rule Leeds out on that basis. And, and I, I have no idea what his wage is, but it'll be extremely expensive. So for cutting our cloth accordingly, then Kiko Casillas surely on the way out, particularly after that, that, um, well, I mean, would you miss him, Michael? I'm sure he is quite good. We've, we've, <laughs> he must be, is all I'm thinking, just just because of where he's been and things, but we've not seen it, have we? So We could get the guy from Derby. <laughs> yes, did well today. Yeah, he might be worth a bid. Nice tribute act. <laughs> what do you think then, Phil? Is, it, uh, is he going to be on the way out? Because it feels a bit like he was a punt on the Premier League. Yeah, I, I feel like that's, that's probably right for the club's point of view, but probably in his head as well. He must have come in January thinking four months, hold it together. And then next season, it's the Etihad. It's <laughs> hold it together. And, you know, well, yes, quite. Um, and then suddenly it's Barnsley, it's Luton, it's Charlton, it's it's all of that. I, I, I wonder how much that'll appeal to him. I don't think his family's moved over with him. I, th- I think he's settled okay, but although it's a long-term contract, he, he kind of felt that it had legs in it if Leeds were in the Premier League and he was playing well. Less so if Leeds were in the EFL for ages because it just doesn't fit really, does it? Real Madrid keeper, um, ex-Espanol keeper. I know he didn't look like it against Derby, but in you know in the Championship, it, it's, a, it's a strange marriage. And... Although it's a four-year deal, I think it's been structured in a way where both sides could probably find some way to break it if if needs be. And the bigger thing is, I mean, we must all have seen the Rehubka night and you knew it, and it's slightly different with Casilla because you knew at the end of the Rehubka night that he was done and that there was no way he was going to be able to play again and that Leeds would have a loan keeper in before the end of the week and in the end they got, they got Alex McCarthy. And the problem for Rehubka, and it's the same for Casilla, is that that's the last thing in everybody's head. And if he has a bad month at the start of next season people en masse are going to decide that there's a problem there that can't be fixed or there's a problem there that is causing permanent confusion or permanent nervousness amongst the defence. And that was really evident in the the second derby game. So I think all in all, the second leg's quite a hard game to come back from. And it's not a reason to get rid of him. It's not a reason why he should pack it in or say enough's enough. But I think it's one to watch that, just whether or not everybody feels that that is going to be right for next year. Maybe Bielsa can get get a grip of him and and sort that out. But, does he, I mean, does that, he speak English? Do you know, I don't know, in all honesty, a lot of the Spaniards do speak very good English. So Hernandez is, uh, has got decent decent English. Saez didn't speak much at all. And obviously, Bielsa is a Spanish speaker who has, a, I think, a better grasp of English than he than he lets on, as I found when I was trying to offer him a lift the, um, the other week. <laughs> but um, but I, I honestly don't know. But I don't think communication has been the issue there. I think it's his impulsiveness and these runs these sprints from the box, which kind of started in the last couple of months and became more and more endemic in his game. And there's the the foul on Quanner at Ipswich where you thought, why are you doing that? Why, why are you coming 20 yards out of your box for a ball that's going to the corner flag? And I think what summed it up against Derby was not so much the goal, but the fact that about 20 seconds later, they're exactly the same. Exactly. And he thought, I can't believe you're coming for this ball, having you know, having just had that brainstorm with them, with Liam Cooper. So there's a problem to be fixed there, I think. And yeah, one to watch. I think that second run out against Derby was the one that broke the night, thinking back, because the first, the goal was a disaster. And then while everybody is still recovering from that, it happened again. And that changed the atmosphere again. There'd already been this, this kind of shock of like, how are we just considered a goal like that? What's going to happen now? And then he did it again before half time. And everybody went into half time thinking, oh, you might think, okay, keeper's made a mistake. Went into half time thinking he's done that twice in a minute. 
and you're right, that's kind of, that's him now. It, he is the keeper who does that twice in a minute and he yeah. wasn't very good for the goals. I, I was looking at his body language when he came off the pitch and he looked at half time and he looked very, very dejected, which, you know, fair enough, you've, you've conceded a goal like that, but you're halfway through a tie that you're still winning. And, and then he had the sympathetic face of Bailey Peacock Farrell came running out onto the pitch <laughs> to, to comfort him, which I'm, I'm sure we've, we've talked often about how sympathetic and uh, emotional Bailey gets. And so Video he, compilation, uh, maybe. I mean, well, not not necessarily this stone face, but <laughs> that's. I do wonder what Casilla may have thought when he just saw this this granite piece of uh, of rock walking towards him. <laughs> I was going to ask about Jack Clark as well because it feels like that one's building. Is that mm. Ian Hart maybe a li- little bit mischievous? He seems. Do we want to say prone to uh, prone to that a little bit? Is there anything in that? Any legs? Or will uh, it, will he be the sacrificial lamb? I think so, but again. I don't know how long the legs are exactly and it will depend on who's offering what and it does seem it definitely does feel as if there's genuine interest down at Spurs but Leeds would want a fair amount of cash for him he's quite a thrilling player to watch Clark when he's on it and when he plays like he does away at Aston Villa but I watch him and I watch Jamie Shackleton and I think that Shackleton looks like looks incredibly more rounded than Clark he looks Mm -hmm. he looks almost 10 years older than Clark in the way that he plays and his his strength and um, and his, his suitability for for a level of football that he's never ever played in before, he just he just adapts to it naturally. And I mean, it was a shame really that he didn't play more this season because I honestly look at him and think he probably could play forty six games, Shackleton. And I think he'll be far more involved next season after the way he played in the playoffs. But Clark is bound to interest people. Manchester City were were after him when when he signed his first professional contract at Leeds um, back in two thousand and seventeen. So again, that that could be done. And I do think we will see somebody sold this summer. I mean, you, you've only got to look at the last two windows. Chris Wood going. Vieira going to finance the Bamford deal to know that that's the model. You know, if, if money's needed, Radrazani will sell players. And he said that, as, when I've interviewed him before, he said that himself, you know, we cannot just buy players, we have to sell players as well. Um, so, so neck on the block then, who's going? If you're asking me to pick the two that I think are most likely, I think Bielsa will, will be very, very insistent that he wants Phillips to stay because I think that's an easy avenue to a lot of money, Phillips, after the way he's played this season. There must be plenty of clubs. Villa, for example, have gone up today. Norwich, others... I, I, hate to say Norwich but anybody at that level who's looking for somebody who could possibly bridge the gap he seems like an obvious fit but I think Bielsa would be desperate to keep him for the purposes of the the spine of the team if not Clark I wonder about Janssen is this the window where Janssen goes and and moves on and is this the window where if that's an option and somebody has to be sold the club are actually quite happy to say okay he's done his stint here he's had a go but if somebody's offering big money then then he can leave I wonder with Janssen there's all this stuff constantly discussed about how much of a team player he is and whether from time to time it's too much about him. I do think he's a very, very good centre-back. I do think he's a quality centre-back. I do think he would miss a lot of what he brings to the team. But if somebody has to be sold, they've they've got to make the choice, haven't they? Who would you sell? I think if I was getting big money for Clark, ridiculously big money, I think on the basis of what we've seen so far, there's definite talent there, but I think it's gambling pretty early on him and it's one that you could regret further down the line but it's equally one that you could ultimately think that was that was actually really good really good value and I'm looking at Vieira over in Italy who hasn't done an awful lot I would much rather have kept Vieira um, and I think there was definitely something to be made of him but perhaps 7 million wasn't bad in the end for for him I don't know that'll, that'll play out in time and with Janssen I mean if Janssen really wants to stay and, and Janssen wants to stick it out for a fourth year very tempted to keep him. But if there's any waiver in there, if he if he's sort of thinking now that he's in his prime and he really is in his prime, you know, you're not talking about a young defender anymore. If he wants to go and as I say, if if, if somebody has to be sold then then perhaps that's the one. But 
I think whatever anybody thinks of his personality or whatever, whatever else, you are talking about one of the best centre-backs in the league. What about you, Michael? Who? I mean, Jack Clark is the one we would miss the least based on this season because he's not really done much, has he? He had a couple of games he came on an influence like the, like the Villa game, but generally speaking, when he started games, he's not had a, he's not had a massive influence on them. I think since he went off, um, didn't come off, since he went off the bench <laughs> against, um, against Middlesbrough, he's not really contributed anything this season. And as, as talented as he is, I don't think he would contribute more across the season than the likes of Phillips or Janssen. Mm. At some point, though, do we have to stop selling our young players and keep them all and build on it? That would be my preference. But if we were selling one and we were, and someone was going to pay us 25 million quid for a, a teenager who's you know, made a few good substitute appearances, then maybe we should take advantage. I think there is a difference in career trajectory as well, because Christensen said, that he couldn't, he didn't play him in the League Cup against Leicester before he'd properly signed because he didn't want Manchester City to see him play mm. in a in a match. And whether it's Ian Hart's influence, he's been the one that there's been transfer rumours the moment he came into the team. It's about his contract and it's about his transfer. Jamie Shackleton is the player who, um, on the back burner for about four or five years, everybody's yeah. been saying, this is the player who's going to be the absolute star. And you've never heard anything like that about him being transferred away about him leaving. And there's probably offers. There's probably as many clubs phoning up Leeds to say, we saw that the the two playoff games, that kid looks really good, but you don't hear about it. So there seems like almost an intent, a difference in intent there as to which one is going to be the the player that's going to be the speculation about and which one is actually better, but there's not, there's no movement. The there's, no, there's nobody on the phone to Tottenham saying, you know, if you put a bid in into Leeds, then my my clients would not be upset to hear about that. And I think, I agree, I think Shackleton's probably a better player. Watching Clark in the under-23s after he came back from illness, it was quite interesting to see the difference from the, the first team because in the under-23s he was, he was taking the piss, basically, mm. beating players three times, doing unnecessary stuff and not really fitting in, not playing like a team player. It was very much the Jack Clark show whenever he came on, the exuberance of a confident teenager, I guess. But then you didn't see that translating into the the first team because I think after his initial burst, when defenders looked at him and didn't know which way he was going to go, they've all got the analysis out. They've all done the VHS research, gone like, right, get him onto this foot, stop him this way. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't really showing. So yeah, if you make that Tottenham's problem and get 15 million back for him, the only thing is that we do need pace and we need wide players. I think it's Harrison going back yeah. and Hernandez's age and also, yeah, the pace in, in the teams. What we like, Shackleton's got it, but he's, mm. is he a winger? He probably could be. We also played him at right back. He could play him in goal probably. He's a definite centre mid though, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, the thing I like about Shackleton, I always love this with, with young players, is that Redfern used to talk about him back in 2013, 2014. He used to say, look out for this kid, he'll be, be really good. And it's nice when somebody says that and then you see four four years down the line them coming through and actually looking as good as, as Shackleton does and I think he's the best of the academy players at the moment by some distance I think he's probably the most likely to play regularly next season as well and one of the few players who put in a decent shift against Derby in the second leg he, he really caught my eye and I thought under the circumstances it was a, a good performance do we think there's any movement in the, the centre midfield if we're talking about selling players we've got Shackleton is a candidate for next season. We've got Forshaw, we've got Click. We talk about maybe Phillips going, but assuming that would be swiftly followed by Bielsa if that happened. Is there any talk about Click or Forshaw moving on? Not those two moving on, but again, there was an extra body there with um, Lewis Baker last season. So it would strike me as 
quite likely that Bielsa would want somebody else in there just in just for the right numbers as he as he adds it up. As I say, I think Shackleton will play a lot, and and he is a definite centre mid. I, I never I never really understood the point in trying to convert him to right back on the basis that he, I know Ailing had his, his dip around about Christmas, but Ailing is a very very solid kind of seven out of ten right back a lot of the time, and not somebody that you're thinking you're going to need to replace fairly regularly. Whereas there have from time to time been problems in the midfield. It's been really unsettled with with injuries and. Something like Forshaw, I, I can never quite. Well, I, I, I like for, I like Forshaw's attitude. I think he's a good player. I don't really understand what he is, or at least in this team, it's hard to work out what he is. Is he a is he a holding mid? Is he an attacking mid? Is he a generic kind of on the halfway line centre mid? And then you put Shackleton on, and you can see that Shackleton's a player who who can play box to box, but likes to get in behind the last man if he can, likes to break and get onto balls in the box. And you can kind of see a defined style of play in the way that you can with Phillips now as well, now that he's been converted into that that kind of Busquets role, you know, the water carrier um, role. And and I don't know, I, I think we'll see, and I think we'll see somebody signed in that area, but I would have thought of the options who are there at the moment. You'll keep, you'll keep most, if not mm. all of them. We had the same discussions about Forshaw, didn't we? When the change was enforced in the, first leg of the playoff when Shackleton came on and you can see as a first instinct when he gets the ball is to go forward with it and either either running with it or look to make the forward pass whereas Forshaw likes to kind of dawdle on it and mm. turn him round, face his own goal, turn back the other way. That goal at Nottingham Forest that he gave away kind of feels very Forshaw to me. That's what he does. <laughs> Puts his foot on it and then kind of chooses the wrong option. Yeah. <laughs> but, but again, I wonder if right. a bit like a bit like Bamford, whether he's had one of those seasons where you're not fit to start with. You can't really get in the team. You get in the team, but you pretty much take whatever position you can get. And by the end of it, you, you're feeling that you never really lit the fire at any point and, and never got yourself going. Um, whereas for somebody like Phillips, it's been such a defined role for him. And I mean, he's, he's played so well in it that he, he'll feel like he's had the season of his of his life. Whereas I, I bet Forshaw feels at the end of it like he's been a little bit part this season and more so than he would have expected. Final bit in this section then, Bielsa is going to stay, isn't he, Phil? I hope so. I, I mean, people on his side are saying, yes, he will. The club are very confident that he will. The caveat is always that Bielsa is so meticulous about everything and so exacting about everything that everything needs to be just so before he's going to say yes unequivocally. And that applies to things like more changes to the training ground. It applies to transfers, players who might be sold, players might be coming in. I think you'll want to see Leeds, because they will use the loan market again this summer quite heavily, I think, but you'll want to see them do better than they did with Izzy Brown, Lewis Baker, Jamal Blackman in particular. He likes Harrison a lot and I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if they if they do seriously try and get Harrison Harrison back. I have to say, in a lot of ways he wasn't for me, Harrison. I, there were things about him that, that kind of frustrated me right the way through the season. There are little bits of magic as well, like that great ball at Derby and that does make you think there's definitely something there, but not consistently enough. I think Leeds would like to would like to get this wrapped up ASAP so in the next few days if they can and I think they're hopeful that, that that might happen but it took ages and ages to get the contract done last summer it took literally weeks so we'll see but nobody on either side has said at any stage that they're, they're doubting that it, it will happen it's just nobody likes to count chickens A lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Heroes and villains for you now. Then we'll get Phil's uh, heroes and villains of the season in just a bit. But first of all, we need to pick one for this week. So uh, as is customary, we pick our villains first. The Ken Bates Villainy Award. We named this after Ken because he brought a lot of misery to our lives for quite an extended period so it was named in his honour and it's customary to give him a nomination each time so what are we nominating him for this time? I noticed his old uh, Haunt Above Subway is is available for rent after that project failed so imagine it's only really robbing a landlord of some money so <laughs> how I'm, much, not, I'm not too upset. Is that How much is that up for? About nine grand a year if you want it. Mm. I think it's like three or four rooms above Subway. Nice view of the South Stand. It's the exorcism fees that we've got to worry about. Who was the, the priest that blessed the pitch? Monsignor... Money, something like yeah. We can get him. Maybe if you work for Chilino, he must work for us. I didn't really work, so did it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> they won. They won the odd game afterwards, which doesn't, to me, seem like qualifying you for a lifetime in exorcism. But more, more than I could have delivered, I think. Would have to cleanse that room. Nine thousand pound a year. Would it be worth? Should we? Should we crowdfund that? Is there? Is there a way we could do that? I mean, if we can't guarantee what we're going to spend extra ball subscriptions on. <laughs> but if suddenly we were at the point where we were making nine thousand pounds a year, I think we would. Was it a year or a month? A year. Right. Well, you know, we could we could explore the possibility. You've just got to. If, if you tell the also that it's his fault, he'll pay. That's true. He likes that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, who are we having for for villainy this week? Then have we got any nominees? Sean Harvey. It has been his uh, his last stand, his last interview. We uh, touched on it earlier. He seems to have tried to do one of these uh, exit interviews, like a farewell speech to make everybody happy with him again um, by saying that everybody needs to stop being nasty about football club owners. Just by fucking off, you're making it happy <laughs> enough. <laughs> I think that's probably how it's worked. He's, he did then uh, point out that, said that we've got a business model in the championship that relies on owner funding, which I think is probably wrapped around his main complaint and probably most owners in the, the championship. That's their major problem with the thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, you've built a business model that relies on us losing money every season. And he's saying, but you've got to be nice to these people. And in a, a, a throwback to his Leeds United days, uh, fans are never happy about what investment is going into their clubs. Trust me, without the owners, they wouldn't have a club. It's a bit supporter support, that isn't it? If you remember him trotting that line out, he's never changed. And also for um, there was a picture circulated of him, his face on the big screen at Wembley with a thank you, Sean Harvey. And Dan, you said that the middle advertising tier all said, uh, yeah, all said it as well. Digital display boards around the middle, yeah, between the tiers, and it looks like which I can only imagine is something he himself has organised. <laughs> I did notice he did the uh, the pre-match handshake, and I think he gave the the medals at the League One playoff. So he dealt with uh, Lee Bowyer and co on Saturday, but it was the acting chief executive. I don't know her name, but the, the lady who was taken over from Harvey did all the uh, dignitary stuff today. So even on his final weekend in the job, they've gone, 
we'll, we'll let the new person do it. Like you, you do league one. I don't know who did league two. Maybe they got Bates back. <laughs> <laughs> Wheeling him around in an iron lung across Wembley. Like, <laughs> an iron lung. Penny for your thoughts on Sean Harvey, Phil? Oh dear. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, Dan's right about this ownership thing. You know, clubs are reliant on their owners. They are reliant on their owners because football may, forces them to be reliant on their owners. And, People would have clubs without owners because not every club needs to operate. You don't need to be in the championship to be a football club. You don't need to be in the championship to have supporters. I don't think that Leeds were formed in 1919 and so 1920 and survived for as long as they did because Ken Bates bought the club in, in 2005. It just doesn't work like that. And there is nobody ever seems to want to address and Sean Harvey certainly hasn't in the period he's been there. The ludicrous disparity between the Premier League and the Championship, which is never, ever going to work. It's never going to work for clubs in the Championship. And, and lower down the Football League, you can almost get away, you can almost get away from that huge gulf because you don't need to operate in quite the same way if you're in League One and League Two. But in the Championship, everybody's expected to compete. I mean, I remember when I first started doing this job, you'd have a core of about eight or nine clubs who you thought they'll have a serious chance this year. Nowadays, you start every season and there are about 20 clubs who are saying, we could get in the playoffs this year. And you kind of think if everybody's carrying that weight and everybody's having to, having to deal with that, you, you are just literally encouraging people to, to have a go and to stick their hands in their pockets. There's been problems with the TV deal this season. I mean, you, you've made him your villain. I mean, I, I'd go for the, the EFL in general. I, I still think £200,000 as a fine for Spygate was unbelievably over the top. And I didn't think anything was necessary in that more than a change of the rules and a slap on the wrist for Bielsa and the club. And they did deserve a slap on the wrist. I mean, I don't think anybody, any of us would have said beforehand that going and spying on or observing, if you want to use that phrase instead, opposition training grounds is something that you'd really expect people to do, but draw a line under it and move on. And, and it was so, the process was handled so poorly that in the end, the Leeds were asked if they wanted to make a formal complaint about comments made by other clubs during the, the investigation. And Leeds said no, but that tells you that even the EFL were thinking some of this has been great, really, has it? And all that's without even touching on what's been going on at Bolton this season. And I have to say that it almost felt in the last week of the season that the biggest concern was about whether or not that dead rubber game 46 with Brentford was going to be played, even though it meant absolutely nothing to anybody. When you had staff at Bolton who were using food banks because they, they weren't getting paid. And you sort of think the least, the, the smallest concern in all that is surely a meaningless kickabout on the grass to give the table a nice, complete 46 game finish. And what went on at Bolton this season was an absolute disgrace. It never felt at any point like anybody had a grip of it and it still doesn't, to be honest. So, so yeah, I'm with you. I think part of your reason there is though, Sean Harvey's main priority has always been Sean Harvey. Mm. Whether he was defending what Bates was up to, it's basically as long as he's always received a salary, he's never seemed massively bothered by what is actually going on under his control. When he started talking about Bolton, because it seemed like it was just being ignored for most of the season. Mm-hmm. And then when it was really, the pressure was on about the, the game against Brentford, the most he could really come up with was just reminding everybody that he doesn't actually have um, the authority to to do things. He says, well, uh, I just run it on behalf of the member clubs. So the member clubs have to decide to do something. It's not up to me. So it's, and that was very, very much like he was when he was here with, with Bates, when the, the crunch would really be on. And they'd say, oh, you see, I don't, it's, it's up to the owners. All right, well, who are the owners? Well, we don't know who the owners are. And it would always be, he'd be in charge right up until the point when there was something actually needed doing and then that that fish would slip out of his hands and go, 
yeah, it's, it's not me actually. It's, it's somebody else has to deal with that. And I, I, I can only observe. I'm oh, con- constantly amazed though at the way in which, and the number of times in which the EFL seem to blunder into grey areas in their own rules where they don't, even they don't know how they're supposed to be applied. So, now, spy, well, spy Bates jumped straight into that, that loophole, well, didn't he? You, you had minus 15 points. It was a case of, I don't know what we should do here because we've never done this before. It seems to be constant test cases and it was the same with Birmingham. And I suppose to some extent you've got to have them before you know how the process works. But all the rules seem to be so open-ended and, and open to challenge that you get something like Spygate. And it is a case of, what do we do about this? Because the rules don't actually address it properly. And we'll get the club on some kind of catch-all good faith phrase. But really, there is nothing specific to go at them with. And it always seems to come back to that with the EFL, that they're never quite sure what it is that they're supposed to do and how things are supposed to be run. And on a basic level, when everything's fine and going along nicely, no problem. But when you hit the complicated disciplinary issues or the, the aspects of the rules that start to get challenged by what's going on, it always, always ends up in... In a mess. And like I say, quite honestly, in the last week of the season, I would have said there's no point in Bolton and Brentford playing. Just give Brentford three points and worry about what's going on at Bolton with the staff and the ownership. But instead, statement after statement of, we're hoping this game's going to be played next Tuesday. And I love the fact that the day after that statement came out, Andrew Taylor was on Five Live in the morning saying, I'm not being funny, but we're all going on holiday on Sunday. We are not sticking around to play this game on Tuesday. We're, we're going away on Sunday. No idea if we'll even be back at this club next year because we're not getting paid. We don't don't know what's happening, but we are absolutely not sticking around to settle this game against Brentford on Tuesday night. And off they went. And good on them. So are we happy to name Sean Harvey our villain of the week and Sean Harvey's Football League villains of the season? I can't see any reason why not. And we're, especially for forcing us to still be in it next year. I think that's... <laughs> Cursing it in advance might work in our favour. Did he favor. Is force the right word? Somebody did. What are we going to do next year when Harvey's not here? Because he wins it about six or eight, six, eight, ten times a season. He's, he's a serial winner of it. We had someone send us, send us a list once, didn't we? And he was by far top of the league. Well, it depends, one, what job he falls upwards into next. <laughs> and then secondly, who it is that takes over from him and what her links are to Ken Bates. <laughs> I'm Googling it now. It's going to be a Von Allen. She, oh my God. <laughs> it's not Debbie Jevons, is it? Debbie Jevons? I, I, I mean, I should really know this for my job. Um, <laughs> but the, the name name escapes me. Go with that. I sound convincing. People will believe it. And the Andy Hughes Hero Award, this is where we pick somebody who embodies everything that's good about our club. Somebody who has enhanced our uh, enjoyment as Leeds fans. Obviously, a bit light on Leeds United-based activity this week. So uh, can we pull somebody from the events of the weekend? Kel Roos. Who? Immediately springs to mind. Bless you. Uh, Derby County's goalkeeper, surprisingly not Scott Carson, which I think amazed us all when they, they pitched up in the, the playoff semifinals. But he's done us a very solid favour today. The second yeah. goal was uh, beautiful, not only in its own execution, but in uh, the reaction shots of Frank Lampard on the sidelines. What was he doing there with that when he came out for that? Because that was poor. Because he came out with a knee up, didn't he, to kind of protect himself as keepers do, but even still didn't direct it at the player's head. You just seems no. to think they had just a long time. dropping his midriff. Yeah, thought he was just going to catch it, but then McGinn, obviously quite small, just snuck in underneath. And that's the point at which you want your keepers to come out and just absolutely barge through everybody, isn't it, mm-hmm. surely? Mm-hmm. And I've not watched the, the first goal properly, but the Keith Andrews in a, a jacket that I think was too long. Also, <laughs> if you're standing up, button it. But... Um, <laughs> He was, uh, and the other pundits were giving a lot of blame to to Maury, I think, on the the other fullback for not following in the the runner who had it into the goal. But the cross came from the left back area. Ashley Cole was 
absolutely nowhere to be seen. Our friend Ashley Cole. Yeah. Mm. Big favourite on your podcast. Yes. Big favourite. We've invited him on, actually. And I mean, nothing to do for the next few weeks, stroke years. Will he yeah. not be an Ayanapa by tomorrow? Even? Very possibly. Well, we can travel. Yeah, we can travel. Depends how quickly <laughs> he moves, because even on the commentary, they were talking about how Tamori was bombing on down down one wing. And we're not sure if it's instructions, but Cole hasn't crossed the halfway line yet. <laughs> and so for that to be... Uh, to be one of the areas where their, their downfall came from as well, because that was such a, I know you're saying that Frank Lampard's done quite a good job, but the Ashley Cole thing was such a, like, is he, yeah. can he not think beyond his mates? This gradual takeover of, if uh, John Terry goes to Middlesbrough, Frank Lampard stays at Derby or, or whatever he does. Maybe if Jody Morris splinters off as well, and then he's managing a club as well, don't need this many sort of, of that crew. Like gremlins, the kind of, the being dropped in water and the multiplying, aren't they? Dennis Wise back to Leeds, something like that. Just the Chelsea, the Chelsea spread. Oh, watch your language. So are we, are we going to have him as our hero of the week, given that we're on pretty slim pickings, the Derby keeper, whatever his name was? Kel Roos. That's the one. Yeah. So what about a hero of the season? We picked Bielsa, Phil. What are you going to go for? Bielsa? Well, quick hero of the week. Can I go for Eddie White for sort of made with tickets for the Scottish yep. Cup final, which was very good of him. And yeah, I owe him a big favour for it's that. It's quite niche as, as a Leeds fan kind it, of angle. but It I is, mean- yes, it is, but it still counts. <laughs> how's, still he, count. how's he getting on? He's doing all right. He's doing all right. He's had a couple of groin operations. He's had a problem with his quad, so it's next season for him. But he was saying he's going to have a full pre-season, hoping to play for the, the mighty heart middle of him. I thought he'd be very good at one stage, AD White, when yeah. he made his debut. Yeah, I can't, he had a lot of a lot of injury problems, and I kind of wonder whether, and I, I mean this in all seriousness, whether he could have done with being born ten years later when things like recovery techniques and you know sort of body management and nutrition and everything is is has improved that much further again. Because I think that he, he played a lot of football when he was young and he was a really intense player and I would imagine it's probably not been great for his... Sorry, you know. I just had a vision of this child running around in Warnock's oh, yeah. side like an eight or ten-year-old. <laughs> but did you used to look that age? That's the thing when he first came through. I mean, I oh, suspect the, he was, the, he was the always young, that clear. The young lad's made a I was, mistake. I was suggesting that he, um, he debuted in 2018 <laughs> rather than 2008, you know. Um, but yeah, he'd be my one of the week. Um, of the season, Bielsa, good pick, obviously. I think I'd have to go for the man who never sleeps, Rob Price, at Leeds... Head of medicine, the butcher of Beeston, as we christened him with and his. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love the stuff about nicking parts from <laughs> what from Baker. If, and, as, we should explain and, for anybody, for the benefit of anybody who's listening new to this, is that um, some podcasts ago earlier in the season we came up with a theory that he was harvesting body parts from low knees that were injured and uh, using them to make our first team players fit again. That's the reference there. Well, anyway, I've seen nothing to say that that doesn't actually happen, so you never know. But <laughs> I've often wondered: a is Rob Price married? Because if he is, I don't think his wife can ever see him. People know what, what medical guys do in physios and everything else, but I don't think they understand the, just the amount of hours involved. And I think if you think it's um, intense or kind of obsessional for a head coach, it's probably even more so for head of medicine or anybody who works in the physio department. I mean, for example, when Jack Clark was taken ill at Middlesbrough, obviously Rob Price went with him to hospital, but then when they came back to Leeds, they stayed in a hotel because Rob Price wanted to keep an eye on him overnight in case there were any other problems before he went home the next day. And it is just I think at the best of times it's it's all hours, but this season, I mean, the injuries have been absolute joke. I mean, it's just every week, every time you turn up to Biel, and Biel's is so open at the press conferences, you turn up and it's uh, yeah, Kamaru's out on Wednesday, and you're thinking, how did that happen? Like, how has that happened? And yet another one. Um, and to be honest, I still think it's a bit of a miracle that they that they finished in third. And made it as far as they did because honestly, I mean that the team the team was just disrupted constantly. But yeah, Rob Price and his team, I think, um, are due a massive cash bonus this that, summer. That's quite a sell, isn't it, for your wife if you were ringing up? Are you coming home in a bit? 
<clears throat> no, I won't be coming home. I'll be uh, staying in town, hotel room, 18-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just looking after him. <laughs> Honestly, uh, yeah, he's done an amazing job, hasn't he? Um, but you look at like Wolves, you know, they had like a 97% fitness rate or availability rate. That was it, wasn't it? Yeah. And they only used a tiny squad. And we, we spoke about this on, was it last week? Yeah. We were and saying, they, and what, what, how, how's that happened for them and not ours? Rob has done well in difficult circumstances, but I would love to him to just go and find out how Wolves had such easy circumstances and yeah. make his own life better, perhaps. Yeah, I, I mean, when and I went to interview about this, I, I was saying to him, you know, everybody, including us, making the correlation between Bielsa's training techniques and the number of injuries, because you assume that two had two makes four. And I think to some extent it probably does. I mean, the players do train train to 100% levels all day, every day when he's he's got them in and they have very few days off and that must take its take its toll. But Rob Price was saying that they, they, the thing that they're concerned about is either re- recurrences or soft tissue injuries, so muscle strains and everything. If you're getting lots of them, then it's a kind of pointer for the fact that you're not training the right way or you're pushing them too far or, you know, not recovering properly. But he said a lot of them had been down to, to impact, you know, to fouls to tackles to, to that sort of thing, which is kind of unavoidable. So I think there's been a pretty large chunk of, of bad luck. But I would have thought, you know, physio guys being the way they are, that they'll have a good look at it over the summer and see if there's anything they can change to try and stop it being so endemic do we, next year. Do we hope Richard Keogh retires, something like that? Because Wolves, it may be very easy to actually keep all your players fit in the championship where, you know, you can't touch anybody, premiership even. Premier League even, it's not even called that anymore, where as soon as you get a touch, you're down. Whereas it's only Jack Grealish that really applies to in the, the championship. Everybody else gets kicked hell for leather. Yeah, and, and you, have, you have fewer games, games, obviously, and you have a bit more time on the ball, or at least it's not the same sort of combative, combative game that you, you tend to get in the championship. So there will be an element yeah. of that as and Recovery well. time as well, because if you're talking about cramming in 46 games, it is, it's for a long time, it's Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, yeah. Tuesday, international Saturday, Tuesday. Yeah, it's very um, difficult. So yeah, that's a factor. So maybe we could uh, just go in the Premier League. We'd be the perfect solution. Should we give that yeah, a try this time then? Well, 12 months anyway. On to a quick Q&A then, if that's all right with you, Phil, because we've got loads of stuff we'd like to know yeah, from you. So where should we start then? Who wants this first, the first question? And we've got a few people have sent us as well. Uh, these press conferences, should we go with that one first? What's it like being in those? Are they ever, do you ever find them a bit intimidating? Not intimidating, or at least not once you get used to dealing with them. To begin with, it, it, he's got a, certain style about him which I've never encountered before and everything is you get the odd little joke from Bielsa from time to time but quite often he's either having a a sort of gentle joke at your expense of something you've asked or it's a kind of in-joke between him and Lam Rani that sometimes you you don't altogether understand. I think from time to time tiring is probably the word. I mean there are some managers who you can sit in press conferences and you can pretty much switch off because they either say the same things over and over again or what they're getting asked you're not really getting very much from it. But with him, especially because of the translation, you are permanently interested in what's coming from it. It has been like a proper education, really. And I think you've got to be careful with Bielsa not to get it in your head that he's perfect or flawless and or that there aren't things that he gets wrong from time to time. Get out, but in, Phil. But in the main, well, yeah, I'll just exit stage left. But in the main, I like his view of football. I like his view of tactics and philosophy and everything else. He's a fascinating guy and he's been absolutely great to write about. He's been great to write about. It's been a proper privilege covering this this season. But there are some press conferences and what you have to remember is you sometimes have three or four a week and you have some where they run to 55 minutes and you do think at the end of it, Jesus Christ, I could go home to bed now. (laughs) You know, just the intensity. And when he gets on a roll, I mean, when I teed him up about Conor Hurahan, a week before the season finished. I mean, that one answer went on for 20 minutes and you've you've got him staring you down and 
shouting at you and punching Lamrani. I mean, 20 minutes of that at the end of it, you do think like, God, this is, this is what it must feel like when, when really, are you just, in front are you just looking, yeah, you're just looking yeah. for like a line there or, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. Like, this will make yeah, a nice quote. Always, yeah. And in the end you get there, you always get good stuff from him, but it, it's unique. It's like no, no other presses I've ever done. And what, how does he compare to like some of the other characters that have sat in that chair then when you think Warnock, Heckingbottom and Monk? I think it's slightly different because he doesn't speak English. So it's all translated. And I think because you get the translation, there's almost a bit of a more of a romantic twang to it. But also I find with a lot of managers that they'll get a bit narked when people start asking what they would consider to be tittle tattle. And a number of managers will say that they want to talk about tactics and they want to talk about the game and the ins and outs of it. But actually when you start to press them on tactics or ask them to speak about tactics, they don't really want to get into that at all. But Bielsa is the total opposite. That's kind of where he comes alive. That's what he loves. That's what it's all about for him. And there have been other managers who've been good to deal with, or at least have been fun or interesting to deal with. Wise was because he never knew when he was going to kick off with you about or with anybody about about any given thing. Um, and then you had all the chaos of the the McDermott years, the um, Hockaday Milanich years as well. Uh, and it goes without saying that some are more interesting than others. But um, I think that the kind of gold star for him is that at no point this season, despite it always kind of being the same tone, the same kind of style, it never got boring. I don't think by the end of it, anybody was saying, I'm sick of hearing from this guy, you know, or, or he just keeps saying the same things over and over again. Everybody seemed really engaged with what was coming from him. It helps when the results are good, let's be honest. If the results were poor, you know fine well that people would be saying he talks a good game, but he doesn't deliver one. But I think what he has to say resonates with a lot of people, including us. How do you view your relationship with Marcelo Bielsa then? Good question. There are times where I wonder whether he even knows who I am, or even knows what, what my name is. And you know that it goes without saying that you're not going to go for a pint with him ever. You're not going to, you're not going to interact with him outside of, of press conferences, but he's, people know from watching him, he's quite a socially awkward guy. So I don't think he particularly enjoys social interaction certainly not in you know in big crowds and so we've had instances where he's come in before his translator and he does just sit there in silence you know he doesn't really engage us and he's not being impolite at all it's just his just his manner and as much as he doesn't deal with the media all day every day when he sits down with you he'll stay forever you know he will stay for as long as you want to to ask questions of him and he will answer literally everything he doesn't want you press guys at the club intervening or stopping people asking anything he wants to be asked the questions and then he'll decide how to deal with them as with the question about Spygate at Ipswich, which is probably the closest I've ever seen him to punching anybody. <laughs> Although I was going to say he probably never has punched anybody, but actually when you hear the stories yeah. of him back in Argentina, that, that might have happened at, at some point. But these days I think he's he's probably probably grown out of that. Who was responsible for that Ipswich question? Um, I, I, I will not give the name, um, but he, uh, he's, he's an old colleague of mine actually, who is a genuinely nice guy and very good journalist. And it was a kind of, Strange question that I think he would probably have liked to pitch differently, given the, the time again. He said it was a joke, and if it was a joke, it was um, it was totally lost in translation. But it made for a good story. Was it the same guy that got uh, Thomas Christensen kicking off against him at Ipswich last season? Because there was the dispute about you know Kane's headbutt or not, and it was just telling that it was it's in both were Ipswich away when that's, boss. That's right. I don't think so, but I'd have to check. He I had a, think a thick so. Scottish accent, that gentleman, which is why when the video went out, a lot of people were going, Phil, why are you asking uh, Thomas this ridiculous question? Ah, uh, that, no, you know, that, there were more than two people that from be Scotland. Right. The one thing I'd say is he was absolutely right about O'Kane. It was, it was a 
playing red card and Christensen shouldn't have been defending him for so it. Um, good, so in that instance, you know, good question. Good well, de- this, this one, yeah. It's a good it, deflection, you know. good deflection. How was Thomas <laughs> to deal with and work with? Because he, he seemed Terribly nice. nice guy. And the one time I did a sit down with him, which was on pre-season in Austria, he had a great story to tell. I mean, he was his career ended early because of injury, but he was um, joint top scorer when he was at um, Bochum in Germany um, in the Bundesliga. He'd obviously played for Spain. He'd done some work as an agent afterwards, but he said he'd hated it because he felt like it was kind of like pound of flesh stuff, you know. Like, and, and he said he, he was constantly, he had people on his case, basically trying to, the, the agency who were employing him were, were trying to get him to essentially poach players from other agents. And he said, I just absolutely hated it. And then he'd gone to Cyprus and he'd done other bits and pieces. So he did have a very interesting backstory. I don't think he ever kind of projected that as mm. head coach. He never came across as massively charismatic or inspirational, but he was a genuinely, genuinely nice guy. But he was the polar opposite of Bielsa when it came to injuries and in that Christensen would, would like to disguise the fact that his fifth choice centre-back had a slight niggle with his calf. Whereas when you turn up with Bielsa, it's just a case of this is the team, this is who's out, Avanti. Do you think he's wrong to do that? Again, even if I do, it makes no difference, does it? Because he's just going to do what he what he wants to do. In the main, no, because you can pretty much guess his team every week anyway. But it must make a slight difference when you're telling Derby that Kamal Roof isn't going to be playing mm. on the Wednesday. They do think that is something you could keep up your sleeve. Particularly when you consider that the whole Spygate thing was about those marginal gains. Yeah. Surely giving away your team is a marginal gain for Derby. But it, it started, that he, he first gave his team before the FA Cup game at QPR and I think the reason he did it was because he was going to make a lot of changes and he wanted to preempt the questions about are you disrespecting the competition? So he was explaining from start to finish why I'm doing this and there, you know, it was a long explanation but the bottom line was because the league is more important than the FA Cup therefore we're going to play all the kids. That was the, you know, that was the crux of it. After Spygate and perhaps he was going to do it anyway but he did take to naming his team specifically without us prompting him for every game it's kind of stopped towards the end of the season but I don't think that was a conscious decision I think he just I think he got out of the habit of of doing it but any time you asked him about injuries it was just a case of yeah this guy's out this guy's out and despite everything you still had people on Twitter saying to you I just be mind games that's roof will definitely play Wednesday and you think it's absolutely not mind games because he just never plays them never plays them ever it's always been I think Derby County the scouting spying thing <laughs> was about marginal gains his assumption was that everybody was spying on Leeds anyway or so he said and he's come from a background where everybody's spying on anybody everybody knows everybody else's business so naming the team it's kind of, well, they know what the team's going to be anyway because they've seen me training it all week. And we spoke here before about how he, uh, he, he started sending videos of Newell's old boys to other coaches in Argentina on VHS who didn't want them. They were like, um, but he said, no, I'm, I, I'm watching your team. You should watch mine. Yeah, my um, wife wants to watch Game of Thrones tonight. Like, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, instead they got 15 hours of Newell's old boys yeah. matches. <laughs> and uh, he just views it as like, if if I know they, their team, they know my team, and then it just gets sorted out on the pitch. So it's, there was just a little suspicion though after Spygate of him saying, right, here's my team. So if anybody wants to make an issue of the fact that I might know things about them, you've yeah. got my lineup. There we go. It felt a little bit like that. Have you had any um, off-camera sort of contact with him at all besides the rain-soaked lift home that you offered? No, we've seen him from time to time. He always, you know, when he walks past, he always says hello. He's always very polite, always cleans his shoes at the front of Thorpe Arts before he comes in the door. The only person I've ever seen 
do that. I always scrubs them on those little, you know, those little shoe cleaners that they that they have. I mean, the thing about the car journey was the rain was horrendous, and he was he didn't have a coat on. He just had this hoodie, branded Leeds one, probably. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah coaching <laughs> kit, getting absolutely soaked. So I pulled over and I said to him, do you need a lift somewhere? And he just said, no, no, I like this. Thank you very much. And carried on into the rain. And you drive off thinking, oh, you know, what a great guy. But then the more, I, the more I drove, I sort of thought, he's like my dad's age. And if that was your dad and you were driving past him and he said, no, I'm just going to walk home in this, you'd say to him, don't be ridiculous. You have to be joking. Get in the car. But with BLC, you just say, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so obviously a creature of habit. But no, outside of that, not not an awful lot. And, and, you know, we were told at the start by people who worked for them before that it would be like that. But I think what I didn't anticipate was that while you would have no interaction with them outside of press conferences, that you would get so much with them in them. I know people said press conferences had gone on for four hours before, but I always assumed that that was because something was blowing up or there was some massive crisis that everybody was kind of fighting over. But I think they could last for four hours before a standard game away at Barnsley, really, when the mood takes him, depending on what he's talking about. Ask him about Kez. We haven't, and we should have done. Uh, it's, finding the, it's, up, it's finding the appropriate time, really, uh, isn't it? Barnsley like, are back next season, so that's it. Well, Barnsley, well, Bar- Barnsley is the one, but it was Oxford away where somebody had given him this copy of it and it was on his pile of books and bags and everything and in the dugout. I bet he has watched it. Yeah, he's supposed to love films, so I don't yeah. think I would put it on the list before Barnsley away yeah, next so season. Did you watch, it's the time to did say. Did you watch Kez? Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully he understands what I'm asking, otherwise that could be one of those where you go back and forward about six times <laughs> before you go, like, never mind. Do you ever sort of fancy like piping up in the press conferences then and, and saying, you know, why aren't you playing Shackleton or why have you done this? Have you know, questioned him tactically or do you find yourself sort of holding back for fear of- No, I think the, the Shackleton one was a, was, was a kind of strange situation because he decided that Shackleton was right back. And we'd, we'd asked him about Shackleton uh, much earlier in the season and, and so Shackleton was the cover for Ailing. And you start to work out with Bielsa that he's got his, his set plans. So people would say to us, we obviously went on about extra centre-back in the summer transfer window. And must have asked him three or four times about that. And and every time it was a case of, I'm not saying another centre-back, we don't need one, that's the end of it. So you get to the point of thinking, even though people on the outside are saying we need another centre-back, there's literally no point in going back and forth with him constantly saying, are you going to sign one? No, same answer as last week. Yeah, I mean, the, the Shackleton one became interesting because actually towards the end, he was very good in the playoffs. And that is probably actually something that we should have addressed a little bit earlier. But in the main, a you know, team or second with four games to go. And it's a kind of peculiar situation to be sitting with them four games away from promotion and saying why aren't you playing him why isn't he involved although this stuff obviously did come to a head you know once the results started to turn and I think you know to use a different example when it comes around to the start of next season assuming both are still here there have got to be questions about Casilla really is he your first choice keeper or is is it going to be Peacock Farrell and that's kind of when these questions come into play when there's an obvious obvious need for a change do you ever sit there and think, or has there ever been a moment maybe where you've thought, why am I doing this? Not so much with him, but there have <laughs> been various points in the past. I mean, McDermott's hour-long press conference, for example, you, you did kind of think to yourself, this is something you'll remember forever, but at the same time, it's absolutely ludicrous. This what, like Journalists all around the country will be just doing a nice, quiet press conference before a, a little trip to Wickham or something like that. Uh, but then that's kind of what makes it unique and, and makes it interesting. I haven't found that with him. Even the, the Spygate extravaganza, which honestly <laughs> felt like it was going to go on all night, there are periods in there where you're thinking, I've got about four pages to fill tomorrow on this. And it's, you know, it's ticking on towards kind of seven o'clock, eight o'clock, and you've no idea when he's actually going to let you go. And at the end of that, he did literally just say, 
thanks for coming and walked out. And I, I was kind of thinking at the end, there might be a bit of scope for him saying, does everybody understand this? And is there anybody who wants to ask anything? But it was literally like, thank you, bye. <laughs> and, and out he went. But no, I have to say not not this season. There is always part of you when the club get beat in the playoffs and it's season, well, 14 for me next year. You just think, am I ever going to get out of this league? Did it affect you as much? Because you're a Hearts fan. Did it, yeah. did it affect you as much as it affected us? Yeah, it does professionally. It doesn't as much as, you know, it's not in the blood in, in the same way, but you, it would be nice to cover them in the Premier League and you get a totally, like, totally different outlook at that level because you start talking about different players, better players, more elite players. You start to branch out in terms of, I know Leeds have done a lot of continental signings and so on, but you start to branch out everywhere at that level because, you, you know, your scouting goes so much further. And I think it becomes that bit more interesting and colourful to cover. I feel it as well for a lot of the supporters that I know who, who who just don't deserve this. You know, it's like that Wednesday against Derby. It's kind of that why always them question, isn't it? It just always seems to be Leeds. It was those records of nobody ever having been top of the league and failed to get promoted. <laughs> nobody having won away from home in the playoffs and failed to go through. The Hold final. my beer. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, there's two records done just like that in the space of a month. And it's it's hard to take, yeah. On one level, do you sort of feel like one of us now, though, because you've been here so long and you've... Yeah, to, to an extent, although it's, it'd be a bit facetious to say that because it's not like you've grown up with it and it's not like I pay any money to go. You know, quite the opposite, I get paid to go. So it isn't, it isn't the same as getting back from Swansea at four o'clock when it's cost you a fortune and, you know, it hasn't gone well or Brentford on Easter Monday where you realise it's all gone and, again, you've, you've shelled out a lot of money. So you, you kind of never... Never say that, but it, I don't think there'd be a lot of point or a lot of enjoyment to be had from the job if you didn't feel it at all, if you know what I mean. If you were just kind of neutral and dispassionate about the whole thing, then I think it'd just be a pain in the ass, to be honest. You know, sitting through long press conferences and going to games where everybody comes out looking thoroughly miserable, you'd be thinking, do something else. Uh, would you like to cover Hearts on a professional basis for that? Or would you, or do you, would you not, prefer having an element of distance? Not really, it? no. I'd, I'd rather have element of distance. I mean, I, I, I don't get to see a lot of Hearts because the international breaks are the same up north as they are down here. A lot of the games coincide and I've got two young girls. So it's very difficult to kind of bail out unless it's Scottish Cup final, <laughs> in which case, you know, you, you go, in, go in no matter what. But two things. I wouldn't fancy covering Scottish football generally. <laughs> The old troll around the same ground four times a season and six times if you meet in the cup and, and everything else, of, of which there's quite a high likelihood that it's that much more varied down south. It's like it's quality football league structure down here from from top to bottom, even though we've we've moaned about the money in it. Um, it. There's just so much to get your teeth into. But I think I'd find it difficult to be objective if you're covering your own club. I would have done this season because a lot of this season has been garbage, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Something you touched on there about lifestyle as well. LUFC Worldwide tweeted us to ask, what's your sleep pattern like? Oh, sleep pattern. Well, the sleep pattern's dictated as much by the kids as anything because one of them's eight, so she's kind of got through the worst of the night get-ups. One of them's four and she's still from time to time appearing in the middle of the night and usually up about six o'clock. So I'm not somebody who tends to sleep a lot anyway. But that's something that takes a lot of time to get used to when you start the job because you'd go from having just done kind of pretty normal hours, you know, occasional late nights, but you're talking like 10 o'clock or something like that to getting home from London or wherever on a Tuesday at three in the morning. And it's a total shock to your body clock and your system. But oh, it's like anything over time you get used to. It. And I, these days I, I tend to get up at sort of six, half six, even if I've got nothing to do. I think I must just be kind of programmed to that these days, which is a bit weird. So like midweek game then, what time are you getting finished on a midweek game after? The worst trip we ever had was Norwich away. I came back with Poppy that night and we... um 
so I, I tend to finish typing about quarter to 11, 11 o'clock, something like that. And we bombed up the, I can't remember my roads and I should know this off by heart, but I think the A47 out of Norwich, which was closed about 30 miles up and we either hadn't seen the signs or there hadn't been any signs. So it turned us around all the way back to Norwich and then detoured down to Ipswich and eventually onto the, the A1. And we got home about quarter past four that morning. <laughs> and those are the nights where you think this seems like such a good idea. And, you know, when I was at school, I'm thinking, God, that'd be good, good fun to do. So yeah, like night games, you, you wrap up about 11 o'clock. We've got a deadline on the paper, obviously. And then the clubs start trying to kick you out at kind of half sensible time. So that's that's generally, it. it's different on a Saturday because we don't have a paper on a Sunday. So it's just all online copy. But yeah, it's, it's late finishes. Very late late finishes finish. for anybody who goes though. You know, guys who are down there just um, in the away end, it's, it's exactly the same. On the plus side, no trip to Norwich this season. No, which is one of the worst journeys going. You always get down to the turn off on the A1 and you think, oh, I've done this in about an hour. And then you've got a hundred miles of single carriageway and it goes on forever and ever and ever. Small mercies out there, every yes. cloud and all. Yeah. switch gone as well. Yeah, that's a bit more straightforward. I don't mind that one too much. At least Portsmouth didn't come up. That would have been that would have been depressing. Any that you're looking forward to in particular this next season? Looting away. <laughs> yeah. I was saying a few weeks ago, we've all been thinking about, you know, the Etihad on the first day of the season. I have to say as well, before the Wigan defeat on Good Friday, I don't think, because the three of us um, that go to games, and I don't think any of us had given any thought to the playoffs at all. It wasn't that we were being complacent about it or assuming it was going to happen. It was just that everything was so... It was so in the zone about automatic promotion that all of a sudden on that, that Good Friday, you're thinking, blimey, yeah, it could be the playoffs and it could be another season in the championship. And I was joking with them saying, we've all been banging on about the Etihad, but it'll sink in when we're away at Luton on the first day of the season next year. There's nothing in there that's a great surprise, really, is there? You know, you haven't got Villa dropping in for the first time in ages. We've been to Cardiff recently, we've been to Fulham a hundred times, Huddersfield, bit of fun involved in that. But it's a little bit difficult to get wildly excited about a division that seems like we've been in for ever. Up as champions then? Hopefully. That's what I thought this season. Although I didn't tweet about that this season because for some <laughs> reason I never quite, I never quite felt that, we, we. you need to tell people about this text conversation that me and you have had all season. <laughs> all season. Go on, go on. Right, so first game of the season, went to Stoke. I immediately thought we were going up and I texted you at full time to say we're going up this season. And then it repeated it. Was it was what was the second game? Was that Derby? Derby week, yeah. I thought, hang on a second. This this is it. This is it. So I thought, well, I've got to text Phil again because I don't want to jinx it. And then what was the game after that? A game after that was Rotherham at home. Yeah, so we had Rotherham at home. It was the Norwich. And I thought, I don't want to jinx anything. And I'm not fatalistic at all, but I did. I texted you at full time, bang on the whistle every game of the season, including the Derby defeat. Yeah. When I finally got some phone reception again. And I used to text you back saying, keep it in the can for yeah. now. And at no point did I ever decide, right, I'm going to, do one of my rash, reckless tweets on Twitter, which is very, um, very relieved that I didn't. But I, I think because if they've been going for the top six, I think kind of February, March time, you'd have had that feeling of realistically you're going to get there. But because they were going for the top two and because it was permanently so tight and you seemed to be swapping time and time again, you, you never got that feeling that, that this is it, you know, this is the one. But I have to say that weekend where they beat Sheffield Wednesday, I did go home <coughs> thinking, surely, surely they're going to get there from here. And no. Well, massive thank you, uh, Phil Hay, for all that. That was brilliant. We must do it again sometime. Yeah, I was just saying to you, it's my debut on this, which is a bit a bit odd. But, th- but then again, having said that, I'm, I'm probably a bit boring for this show. No, 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 no. You've got actual football knowledge and insight, whereas we're just, we sort of swear and, and just try and bluff our way through it it's with bit, the blind prejudice, you know. It's a bit like that time. Remember when they got Larry Hagman on Shooting Stars and everybody sat around thinking, yeah, this is why we pay Johnny Vegas. 
most weeks. Um, <laughs> I remember, I think it was Vic Reeves or Bob Mortimer, one of, one of, one of the others, saying to Larry Hagman at the end, you're going to sack your agent after this, aren't you? <laughs> Are you uh, Larry Hagman in this or Johnny Vegas? Um, I'd have to be Larry Hagman. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for joining us. We will get Anytime. you on again. Thank you. On again sometime. And if you want to hear the bonus Q&A stuff, have a listen to the Extra Ball. That and links to the summer special will all be on thesquareball.net. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you next time. The Square Ball Podcast. Podcast.